0: on a mission to help lawyers and law firm owners maximize wealth and achieve financial independence. Welcome to The Lawyer Millionaire with Darren Wurtz from Words Financial Services. In this podcast, we will help you build wealth, minimize your taxes, and plan for retirement with money management strategies designed for the legal profession. Join us in this journey where we help you manage your money so you can make the most of your future. Start feeling confident in knowing you are well prepared for retirement and on track to financial independence. Now onto the show. A
1: little self care can go a long way, especially for attorneys who get caught up in their clients and their caseloads. Now, that self care may include taking some personal time, eating better, getting regular exercise, but it should also mean investment planning for your future. Your host, Darren Wirtz, focuses on advising lawyers, and hey, he's even written a book, The Lawyer Millionaire. I'm Patrice Sakura. So, Darren, What do you tell attorneys who say, oh, I'll start investing later?
2: What a great question, of course. You know, that is something I run into a lot. And I've actually been having a lot of conversations with younger attorneys lately. And that's the big question they have is, you know, should I start investing or should I be focused more on paying down my student loans? And of course, you need to do that. You know, that's really important. But there's a really important concept when it comes to investing called the time value of money. And really, when it comes to investing, the only thing that you control is the amount of time that you're invested. The longer your investments can, uh, the longer your money can work for you in the market, the greater that growth is going to be. This concept um, illustrates how money can grow. And it's really hard to to wrap your head around this. It's exponential. It's the exponential growth of money over time. And and that's through this concept called compound growth. So basically what happens is you have, let's say, $10,000 invested. And let's say you get a 10% return on that money this year. So you earn $1,000. Well, next year, you, instead of having $10,000 invested, you have $11,000 invested. And then maybe you earn 10% on that. And so instead of earning $1,000, now you're going to earn $1,100. And so what happens with this compound growth thing is that you're earning on top of your earnings. And, and that really accelerates the, the growth of your money over time. And you don't have to do a thing. You don't have to do a thing, <laughs> except get started. you right. know <laughs> uh, One of my clients is a former teacher, and she is making a career change. She has some retirement funds that she wanted to roll over to an IRA. And so we're working on that right now. and it's about hundred and eighty thousand dollars. And you know, I've run into this before. Sometimes what happens? Uh, when people make a career change like this and they roll over their retirement assets, they, you know, they're going through some volatility in their lives and they start dipping into those retirement funds, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's a very big mistake. And I have seen tragically people wipe out all of their retirement savings in a very short amount of time, and so to to help this client really understand why it's important to leave that money invested i said okay in about you know 10 years um you may double your money you know there's a there's a rule called the rule of 72 that we use to kind of determine how long it takes to double your money right and basically it's whatever your rate of return is Take 72 and divide it by that number. That's how many years it's going to take to double your money. So if we're earning 7%, and that's kind of a reasonable expectation for a long-term rate of return, let's say we're earning 7%, it's going to take 10 years to double your money. So in 10 years, that 180 will become 360. But then add another 10 years on top of that. Mm -hmm. Now you're looking at 720. And then add another 10 years on top of that, because this person is quite young. Now you're looking at 1.4 million. Now, that's pretty it. incredible. I'll take it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and when you look in those terms, right? So, oh my goodness, this amount of money that I have right here, this could become $1.4 million by the time I retire. Okay, that's inspiring. And that makes me want to leave that money there. It's really powerful, the the power of, of compound growth. And uh, it's hard to really grasp it until you put it in, into those very real terms. In the book, there is an illustration I I use about the land uh, that Manhattan is, the the city of New York, that the city of New York occupies, right? Now, that's worth a lot of money, right? Uh, I would think so. It's some of the most expensive real estate in the entire world. Well, according to legend, uh, that land was purchased by the settlers for $24, okay? uh way 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 long ago i don't know if that's true maybe it is maybe it isn't but anyway if you were to take that 24 dollars and invest it versus what the value of the land is today which do you think would be greater over time patrice oh yeah right it's got to be a quick uh trick question here but well it really is and i think you probably know the answer
1: (laughs) it's just going to be worth a lot of money
2: right i mean not none of us have 300 plus years to invest. That's the the caveat, of course. But today, the value of Manhattan is about $1.74 trillion. But if you took that $24 and invested it and earned an average 9% rate of return over the next 395 years, today, you'd have $14 quadrillion, which is a number none of us really even comprehend. I was just going to (laughs)
1: say, I have no idea what a quadrillion looks like
2: it's anyway, it's a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You could buy several, uh, quite a few Manhattans. And that's just the power of compound growth. So in in terms of people are saying, you know, should I get started? The answer is yes, you should get started. You should get started as soon as you possibly can, because time is your most important asset when it comes to investing. Is
1: there an investment that is better? Or does it depend on the individual or the goals? What, what should we be investing in?
2: Great question. And, and there are lots of ideas floating around out there. So let's break it down into four major groups, okay, to keep it simple. You have stocks, which is probably what most people think of, right, when they think of investing. And that's going to probably be your primary vehicle for growing wealth over time what is a stock? Well, uh, a stock represents ownership in a company. So when you buy a stock, you're literally buying a slice of that company. If you buy a share of Apple, you're buying a little piece of the company Apple. Okay. So that's the way stocks work. Um, There are lots of publicly traded companies, all the big companies. uh, And then you have uh, indices or indexes that track certain groups of stocks one of the most common and well known is the s and p five hundred so mm-hmm. what does that mean the s and p five hundred well the s and p five hundred is a collection of the five hundred largest companies in the united States now there's two ways you could buy stocks right you, you buy individual stocks or you could just buy the whole thing and oftentimes that's going to be a little bit better but Historically, stocks have been um one of the the f- most growth-oriented tools for investors to use. And so that's probably going to make up the bulk of your portfolio. And the second major group is bonds. And usually when people think about investing, they also think about bonds, stocks and bonds, right? You know, that's mm-hmm. that's pretty uh common terminology. Stocks so,
1: and bonds, b- <laughs> shoots and ladders, up and <laughs> down.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So bonds are, instead of an ownership asset, it's a lending asset. So when you buy a bond, basically you are lending money to a company. And in exchange, they are going to pay you a dividend, they're going to pay you a certain amount of interest. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have corporate, there are various types of bonds, right? We have corporate bonds, which are bonds issued by companies. And we also have government bonds, which are bonds issued by the government. Now, Government bonds are less risky in theory, because the government, at least so far, has uh, the US government has not ever defaulted on its debt. The risk, of course, in investing in stocks and investing in corporate bonds, uh, is the the risk that that particular company may not be able to pay interest on its bonds or that the value of that company may decline. Maybe even the company goes bankrupt. There have been some pretty glorious examples of that throughout history, even big companies that people thought were invincible, such as Enron. I was thinking (laughs) exactly
1: that one. Yep.
2: Right. So that's the big risk when it comes to stocks is that they'll go bankrupt and bonds too, for that matter. And then government bonds are uh, less risky insofar as we're pretty sure the government is going to continue to pay on its obligations. A quick then, quick question here. Yeah, go
1: ahead. If, if it's not as risky, is the return lower?
2: Oh, thank you so much, Patrice. That is really, really good. Yes, you are absolutely correct. Return is really a function of risk, usually. I mean, you, there are certain risks you can take that are not going to be as rewarded. But in general, uh, more risk yields more return. And so in terms of corporate bonds, they usually pay a higher dividend, than government bonds. In fact, there are high yield bonds, which are the bonds issued by distressed companies, <laughs> companies that are not so credit worthy. And of course they pay a lot more, but they also entail a lot more risk at the same time. Yes. So your, your risk and your reward are definitely correlated in that regard. All right. So we have stocks and bonds then there's two others that aren't really um, thought about quite so much, but maybe are becoming a little bit more popular uh, due to inflation. (laughs) And so the first one would be commodities. Not a lot of people think about commodities very often or even have commodities in their portfolio. Well, what do we mean by commodities? Commodities are are physical assets, Um, things like oil, gas, gold. Even agricultural products like wheat and coffee beans and things like that, right? So there's a, you know, a lot of commodities that you can invest in. And commodities are, for a long time were kind of out of vogue because they hadn't really provided any kind of real handsome returns for a long time until this year hit, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then all of a sudden we have inflation. and commodities are, you know really the only thing that has maybe yielded, any kind of decent return so far this year. So commodities are, of course, though, I think something that should be in your portfolio, maybe to a smaller degree, but they but need to be in there. Uh, and then finally, we have real estate. And I like to classify real estate as kind of its own separate asset class because it has kind of some characteristics of bonds and some characteristics of stocks. Real estate tends to provide returns that are pretty similar to the stock market, but, and we're talking about, of course, when we talk about real estate, we're talking about REITs, which are real estate investment trusts. So when you buy a REIT, you're buying a collection of real estate properties, usually commercial real estate, and you are getting dividend payments. They're they're income producing kind of assets like bonds, but they have returns that are historically have been pretty similar to stocks. Now, why do you need all these four different categories? Well, Each of them does well in different types of environments. And so that's why you need, you know, if you're younger, you can maybe, you're maybe going to put more in the stocks category, but you need a little bit of all of them. And here's why. Stocks do really well when inflation is low and economic growth is strong. And so that's usually the case. Uh, and, and and during those time periods of time, stocks are really, really rewarding. Bonds, when do bonds do well? Bonds do well when inflation is low and economic growth is not great. And we do have those, t- those time periods, right? If we're in a recession, the bonds tend to do really well. Like during 2008, when the stock market was plunging, bonds provided a really nice, uh, buffer to that kind of downside. They they performed well. They were actually positive, right? So, two different kinds of economic uh, circumstances there. Commodities, commodities tend to do well when you have stagflation, which we might be in right now. Economic growth is slow and inflation is high, and so. Commodities tend to do well in those kinds of time periods. And then real estate. Real estate tends to do well when you have high inflation and you have good economic growth. So you kind of have four different kinds of economic environments. And inflation is not something a lot of people have been thinking about until more recently. But each of those different things, stocks, bonds, commodities, real estate, uh, have different circumstances under which they thrive. And they're going to help your portfolio overall.
1: I think most people understand buying stocks, how you do that. But if you wanted to get, say, one of the indexes, as you said, the S&P 500, or if you wanted to buy bonds, or if you wanted to buy commodities, how do you do it?
2: Yeah, great question, right? So, I mean, you know, you could go out and buy physical gold, or you could go out and buy physical oil, but the problem, of course, (laughs) is storing it, you know, at uh, Uh, I actually have a client who uh, had an issue because she has a lot of physical gold and she was moving and she didn't (laughs) quite know how to move it. So um, (laughs) that becomes an issue. Well, thankfully, all of these things can be bought as part of a, a mutual fund or an ETF. Of course, all these things you can purchase directly through different exchanges. You can buy a bond directly. You can buy a stock directly. Uh, but really, the key to smart investing is to be diversified. That's really, really important, especially when it comes to bonds, um, corporate bonds. I would say, you know, government bonds are, you know, it's the U.S. government, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when it comes to corporate bonds and stocks, when you buy an index like the S and P 500, or you buy the aggregate bond index, you're spreading your money across all kinds of different companies. And that's really what you want to do. And you can do the same exact thing with real estate. There are real estate funds that you can buy. Um, and you can do the same exact thing with commodities. And to make it easy, you know, you can buy a fund that focuses on a particular commodity, but that's really not what you want to do because you don't want to mess around with having all these different individual components. That just gets a little bit too complex. Instead, you can buy what's called a broad basket commodities fund that owns all the commodities. And that way you just get the benefit of whenever commodities in general are doing well. Now, I mentioned funds and I mentioned ETFs, right? So I think we need to talk about those two things. Uh, What is a mutual fund? A mutual fund is a collection of of lots of different things, uh, like a, a stock mutual fund, is a fund that owns a whole bunch of different companies. And when you buy that fund, you're buying all those companies together. That's really nice. Mutual funds trade once a day at the end of the day. So when you buy a mutual fund, you're going to get the price at today's close. So that's kind of cool. Um, now, sometimes mutual funds have uh, restrictions on how long you have to own it or things like that, or they have a fee that you have to buy, pay to buy it up front, or maybe a pay it on the back end. My personal preference is to use ETFs whenever possible. What is an ETF? An ETF is an exchange traded fund. So it's like a mutual fund, but it trades like a stock. So basically you can buy it at any point during the day or sell it. It's just a lot easier to manage that way. And usually they're a lot less expensive.
1: All right, sounds great, wonderful. All these options out there. Now I'm going to set up my portfolio. What, what? Where do I start?
2: The first question you want to ask yourself is how much risk you're willing to take. That's mm-hmm. what's going to define everything. Uh, how you set up your portfolio is going to be a function of your risk level. Now, really, there's um, there's one ratio that we usually look at, and that's stocks versus bonds. Uh, because bonds are there in the portfolio most of the time to provide a buffer when stocks aren't doing so well. If you're really young, you want to be really aggressive, then you're going to put more of your portfolio into the stocks category and less into the bonds. You may not even have any bonds if you're really young and you want to be really aggressive. But as you get closer to retirement, you want to dial that back a little bit. You want to be a little bit more diversified, you want to have some cushion in there uh, because really what you want to think about, what do we think about in terms of risk? What does risk mean? Well, things can decline in value. That's what risk means. (laughs) There's a lot of ways that financial planners define risk. The way I like to define risk is in terms of drawdown. Drawdown means how much are you willing to see it go down?
1: (laughs) Let's say not at all.
2: Does that happen? (laughs) Uh, Well, that's that's very difficult to achieve. Um, All investments have a certain amount of drawdown that they are capable of. To put things in perspective, the S&P 500 uh, had a drawdown of about 50 percent in 2008 during the 2008, 2009 financial crisis Uh, during the 2020 crash, which was really short. Uh, the S&P had a drawdown of about 30%. So let's look at 50%. That's quite a, kind of a worst case scenario. So imagine your portfolio, let's say you have $100,000 invested. Are you willing to see that go down to 50000 you <laughs>
1: Yeah, your stomach has got to be able to, to withstand that.
2: Absolutely. Now, it will recover. You know what I mean? So It's not like a permanent loss, but it's a question of, can you psychologically handle that without, the the, the thing is, right? You don't want it to go down that far. And then you're like, okay, I can't take it. I'm taking all my money out. And then you lock in that loss. Wrong time, (laughs) wrong time. So it's like, okay, can you handle that amount of drawdown without panicking and making a big mistake? That's the question we want to ask. And if it does go down that much, are you willing to wait three or four years To see it come back to where it was, which is what happened in 08, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the big question. And you want to, how much drawdown can I endure? Am I willing to wait for it to recover? And a lot of that really ultimately has to do with your time horizon. So if you're retiring in a couple of years, you know, you need to think very carefully about how much you are willing to experience in terms of drawdown that's really where it gets critical. If you have 10 years or more until retirement, you have a lot more ability to withstand those kind of drawdowns because you have the time to wait for things to come back. And that's really, in in the way I think about it, the biggest determinant of your risk tolerance, or as I like to say, risk capacity, is your time horizon. Mm -hmm. If you're young, you want to be aggressive. Even if you don't feel like it, (laughs) you want to be aggressive. Um, And then as you get closer to retirement, you want to dial things back.
1: And then that begs the question, you've already touched on it a couple of times, but talk a little bit more about what the different portfolios would look like for a young attorney versus an attorney getting closer to retirement.
2: Yeah, absolutely. If you're a young attorney and you don't plan on touching the money for a long, long, long time, let's say you just got out of uh, law school and you're setting up your 401k, right? How should you set it up? Well, you know, since you have the time and you if you're comfortable with it, you can go 100% in stocks. You know, maybe 10% in bonds, but you really even then what is it really doing? What is that 10% in bonds really doing? You know <laughs> what I mean? So, go for it. Be aggressive. It's fine. As you get towards maybe midlife, right? In your 40s, And your career is going well, you're making the most money ever, your 401k has grown. Now it's time to start thinking about maybe putting a little bit in the bonds side, maybe 20 or 30 percent, somewhere around there. We start adding the bonds a little bit, you know. And and not, and you know, I'm I'm oversimplifying things here, of course. So (laughs) take all of this with a grain of salt. Uh and then as you get closer to retirement maybe five to 10 years away from retirement, you're maybe increasing a little bit more, maybe 30%, maybe 40% into bonds, cash, and alternatives. But you still, even as you go into retirement, you need to have a strong allocation to stocks. And why is that? Because you need your portfolio to grow. And and really you have this, this tension here. You need your portfolio to grow, but you can't afford a lot of loss. And so you have to walk a really fine line there to make sure that you can meet your goals going into retirement, especially with inflation. You need that portfolio to grow so you can afford things as as the value of money declines over time.
1: Obviously, this is not a set it and forget it situation. But as you get closer to retirement, do you should you spend more time looking at tweaking here, tweaking there?
2: You know, that's a good question. And I think um, it would be smart uh, to check in on it. I think you will naturally do that. (laughs) I think it would also be smart to consult a professional at that point in time. (laughs) So here's the thing, right? There is... um, if you have a big event like 2008, but you're far from retirement, it's not that big of a deal. Really, the most critical phase of your lifetime is those few few years right before retirement and those few years right after retirement. That's really where you can't afford something like that to really change the picture. We call that sequence of returns risk. I think we mentioned that before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it happens later in retirement not so big of a deal. It doesn't change things quite as much, Uh, but you do want to check in. Now, there's something that you can do that will maybe help to enhance your returns and also help to manage your risk level, and that's called rebalancing. Uh, Not a lot of people do this uh, because we're busy with our lives. We we don't have time, Uh, but there's some really interesting studies uh, that have been done about rebalancing. Um, And the question is, what do we mean by rebalancing? Well, if your portfolio, let's say you set it up and you've got 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds, let's say. And let's say we've had a really strong period in the market and you go, you check back in and whoops, now because of the growth in the market, you have 70% in stocks and 30% in bonds because the stocks part has grown so much. Well, great. That's fantastic. But now your portfolio has more risk. (laughs) right? So you might want to rebalance. And what you're going to do when you rebalance is you're going to sell some of those stock holdings, bring that back down to 60%, buy some more bond holdings or other things that are lacking and bring those back up to the targets that you want them to be at. Now, how often should you do this? Right? That's the golden question. Now, when you do it, you're kind of automatically doing the thing that everyone says you're supposed to do, right? Which is sell high and buy low, (laughs) okay? So vice versa, if you have, let's say the stock market has had a really bad decline and you're instead of 60% stocks, it's at 50%. And you're gonna bring that back up by buying. So you're gonna be buying it at a nice low point. And so that's kind of an automatic way to do that. Now, typically I would suggest that people do you know, check in on their portfolio, maybe on a quarterly basis, something like that. But there's some interesting studies that have been done about rebalancing and you can rebalance too much. Hmm. huh? (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing Uh, in investing. We have in, in the stock market, we have trends that happen Right, we have a nice, maybe we have a really nice, strong bull market, and the stock market's in a really nice positive trend, or vice versa. I mean, you know, maybe we have a, a bear market. So let's let's talk about the bull market. If the market's advancing and we're on a nice, steady, positive trend, and you keep rebalancing, you keep harvesting your gains, you're actually going to detract from your growth because you're going to be cutting it off at the knees every time it starts growing. Okay. So that's kind of, maybe we shouldn't rebalance too frequently. Okay. The other thing too is, let's say we're in a prolonged bear market where the stock market is going down, 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 down. If you keep rebalancing, you keep buying into the stock market as it's going down. (laughs) Right. Which may not be ideal. So you can rebalance too often. Um, really I would say rebalance, you can rebalance kind of on an automatic basis, like, like annually. And that's probably what most people should do. If you're not going to be paying attention to the markets, or you can rebalance strategically if you're paying attention. And let's say something major has happened in the stock market. We've had a really big run-up or we've had a really big crash, right? Right. And maybe we've had a a 10% or 20% move in the markets. You can measure it like that. You could say, okay, what if we're up by this much or we're down by this much at that point in time, I'm going to rebalance. Those would be good opportunities. So that's what you kind of, two ways you can go about it, but try not to do it too often.
1: All right. You mentioned real estate and you mentioned REITs. Talk to me more about that
2: yeah, so uh, a lot of my clients are invested are interested in real estate investing. And not so much, you know, the stock market and REITs as we discussed before, but in terms of flipping and in terms of owning rental real estate that they can derive income from. You know, it's I don't know what it is, but i I find that that is a very popular thing for attorneys and and law firm owners to be involved in. And that's great. I'm not knocking that because, I think it's great to have multiple streams of income. I think it's great to have lots of different things going on. That's that's fantastic. But studies have shown that REITs have shown greater returns over time. And also, it's easier. So when, <laughs> when, you know, if you own actual physical real estate, you've got to think about all the maintenance and upkeep and money that you have to keep putting into it. When you own a REIT, you just buy the REIT. You don't have to put any additional capital in. You just, you know, you're along for the ride. Um, The other thing too is actually stocks may ultimately be better. (laughs) Really? Um, Historically, the stock market has done better over time than real estate. Now, there are a lot of caveats, of course. And, you know, real estate is all about what? Location, location, location. (laughs) So, we're talking about general terms, you know, the general real estate market. There may be particular opportunities. Uh maybe there's a particular property that you want to buy that that uh is a bad part of town now but will soon become a good part of town and so it may experience a lot greater growth than your typical real estate investment. So, there are things like that to be aware of, but in general, my opinion and of course this is my bias is that the stock market is generally better over time
1: you've laid out a lot of possibilities options scenarios here so tell me why why would someone not work with a financial
2: advisor <laughs> right i think the question i suggested was why would someone but I know, yeah <laughs>
1: But with everything you've just sp- spoken about, it's like, why not work with one for heaven's sakes?
2: Yeah, I know. It can be very complex, right? And, you know, there are, I want to say, there are some one-stop shops that can make it very easy for you. So we're talking about things like a target date fund. I don't know if, you, if, uh, you, if you're familiar with target date funds, but let's say you're retiring in 2050. That's your, your target. You can buy a target retirement fund target date 2050 and it's set up for people who are retiring in that year and it's going to start out aggressive this year and it's going to slowly get more conservative over time you could do something like that there so there are simple ways to do it but you're right there is a lot of complexity and there there's a lot better things that you can do um, when you're working with a professional someone like me now there are One of the things that we do for our clients is we change things tactically. We have a a tactical approach to investing. Now, what I mean by that is the portfolio is not gonna be a set it and forget it kind of thing. There's nothing necessarily wrong with set it and forget it or buy and hold as, as we like to call it. That can work just fine. But when you're working with a professional, we can kind of help you say, okay, maybe we want to shift a little bit in this direction because this area or this sector is or experiencing a really nice positive trend and we want to ride that wave. Or if there are certain warning signs, certain alarm bells that are going off that we pay attention to, we can start to dial back the risk proactively and do things like that. So these are tactical shifts to try to see, okay, what kind of a trend are we in and how should we position the portfolio best for that trend? Now that sounds great, right? I would not recommend doing that on your own unless you're a professional or unless you really pay a lot of attention to things. The other thing too is people people get messed up trying to do this also because they're only making these decisions ad hoc or, you know, you know, kind of as needed. Whereas someone like me, who's constantly monitoring your portfolio, we are constantly paying attention to very specific quantitative indicators that we follow and using those to make mathematical rules-based decisions on how we're positioning your portfolio. So there's a lot more that, that a, a professional can do for you. Uh, I think you know <laughs> um, that's going to help you Manage the risk level, which is really very important as you get closer to retirement, but then also hopefully enhance your returns over time.
1: Well, Darren, how can somebody reach
2: you? Well, you can uh, go to the website. uh, It's thelawyermillionaire.com. And if you scroll to the bottom of the page, there's a link there you can click on to go to my calendar and schedule a time with me. You can also just give me a call. And be happy to chat with you on the phone. And of course, uh, check out the book. The book is out now. It's available. I'm holding a copy of it right now. It is available from the American Bar Association. And we we talk about all of this and more. And We go into a lot more depth on investment planning. There's a whole section on investment planning in there. So you can, you can DIY this yourself if you want to, but- it is very complicated. And if you want some more help, if you're so busy running your law firm, which is most of my clients, they're busy people, and they want someone else to do this for them so that they can focus on the things that they need to focus on, we can do that for you.
1: Well, Darren's book and Darren's podcast are both called The Lawyer Millionaire. Follow the podcast, you'll know when new episodes are ready, share with colleagues and friends, get the book, read it, and then give Darren a call. I'm Patrice Sakura, and thanks for being with us.
0: Thank you for listening to The Lawyer Millionaire. Click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not intended to represent investing or tax advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified investment or tax advisor with any questions you may have regarding your own financial circumstances.